All right, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you. We ask now as we go to your word that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to us tonight. And Lord, we thank you for this place you allow us to meet where we've been for three years. And we're just thankful for this campus. And, and Lord, we are thankful that when you say no, you know what is best. And so Lord, give us ears to hear what you would say to each and every one of us tonight. We pray again also for those watching on live stream. May you bless them as well. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. So Nehemiah, we started Nehemiah last week. And Nehemiah really is a great book for understanding what it means to begin in ministry, be faithful in ministry, and then finish strong in ministry. It's a book that's used often. And Nehemiah had it was the cupbearer for the king. Now, when we come to this point, the king is now Artaxerxes. It's, a, it's the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. And basically, Nehemiah was a slave. He was a servant to the king. But he was a servant that was trusted because he was serving as the cupbearer. And the cupbearer, the king had to trust more than anyone because he was the one that would taste test his food and his drinks to make sure that... Someone wasn't trying to poison the king, so the king was literally putting his life in this man's hand. Now, Nehemiah was serving, and you would think from the world's perspective, if you're going to be a slave, it's pretty nice to live in the palace. It's pretty nice to eat the same food the king eats. It's pretty nice to have the, that comfort. And a lot of people would do anything to have five minutes to talk to the king, and he got to talk to the king every single day. He had the king's ear. He had a relationship with the king, and as we'll see tonight, the king had a lot of faith in this man. Now, Nehemiah is a cupbearer. He's not a construction worker, he's a cupbearer. And he gets word back from his brother who had gone to Jerusalem. Now remember, we saw it in Ezra that during the time of Zerubbabel, about 70 years before this time, a whole group went back, about 50,000 people. And they did get the temple, again, worship back, back in service, but they never did finish building. Then Ezra went back, and when he went back, he helped, get, helped them get back on track spiritually, sacrificial back in place, system back in place. But now the word comes, and it's been 140 years, 141 years if you want to be exact, since Nebuchadnezzar tore down the walls, burned all the gates, and leveled Jerusalem. And 141 years later, the word comes back to Nehemiah from his brother. He says, how are things in Jerusalem? And he tells them, it's rubble. The walls are still down. The gates are still burned. And Nehemiah is so grieved by it that he starts weeping and he's mourning and he starts crying out to God. And he's so impacted by it that he, start, he fasts and prays because his heart is broken about what he hears. And if you were here last week, we, you know, we saw that he cried out in prayer. He prayed day and night. And again, he confessed the sins of Israel. If you were here last week, I told the message, a burden is a spawning ground of a calling. And when you're truly called, you can't think of anything else. And this becomes all-consuming for Nehemiah. Now, what's amazing is it's been rubble for 141 years. One time, a group went back for a while, and the king 
got word that, that they were rebuilding. And so people sent word back to the king and told the king, hey, they're rebuilding. And if they rebuild, they're going to be a problem for you. And they're going to raise up an army and, and they're not going to want to pay you taxes anymore. And everybody you know, on that side of the river is all going to be submitting to them. So the king sent back word telling them to stop building. And so that was 20 years earlier and still no one has picked up a rock. And so literally it's been leveled for 141 years and no one's doing anything about it. And the people that live there just lived in the rubble. You know why? Because the guy who was called wasn't there yet. And the reality is why would 50,000 plus, now they've, time has gone by, it's maybe over 100,000 by now and nobody's doing anything. And here's Nehemiah a thousand miles away, not a construction worker, a cupbearer. He hears about it and he can't even sleep. And he's mourning and he's praying and he's fasting and he's crying out to Almighty God because he is so burdened for it. So the first thing you see in the burden responding of a calling, you're truly called to do anything else. You're not called. And it became so heavy, it drove him to a place of prayer. And finally, he was praying and asking God that he would be able to go back to Jerusalem and be the one to bring restoration to the city. Now, if you have your outline for tonight, grab it. And I tell the message, the transforming work of the call of God in the life of a believer. When, when you respond to the calling God has placed upon your life, there's transforming work that God does in your life. And by the way, every single believer has gifts and a calling upon their life. You may not be called to be a pastor, but you do have a calling in your life. And so when you recognize what that calling is, it becomes a get to and not a have to. It becomes, it becomes a passion. It's something you, you desire to do. It's something if, that if they said it made it difficult to do it, you do it anyway. And you know the difficulty is coming and you're still in with both feet. Like Paul said, woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel. So here are the four, five points for tonight. The transforming work of the call of God in the life of a believer. We're going to see these in the life of Nehemiah tonight. When you're consumed by the calling God has placed upon your life, you won't be able to keep it to yourself. When somebody is called by God to do something, it becomes evident to everyone around them. And when they have a heavy burden for something, it'll even show in their countenance. And we will see that in tonight's text. When Nehemiah is near the king, the king's going to go, what's up with you? What's wrong with you? Why, why, why do you look the way that you look? Because it, it was so overwhelming to him that he couldn't think of anything else and it showed in his countenance. And when somebody is truly called by God, you, you don't have to prompt them to do it. They will run through brick walls to do what God has called them to do. Number two, you will put feet to your faith. Guys, it's one thing to say, oh, I know I'm called to do this. And it's another thing to do something about it. And I've met people who say, yeah, I know I've got a calling on my life, but I'm kind of busy right now. Or I've got a calling on my life and there's just so many things going on. And, and you know what? True calling will be putting, your feet, putting feet to your faith, putting that, that calling on your life into action. Number three, when God has a calling upon your life, you're going to have to count the cost. Anytime you respond to the calling of God, it is going to cost you something. It's going to cost you time. It may cost you your comfort zone. You may have to get out of your comfort zone and do things that you've never done before, and you might be scared half to death. 
It may, you know, it may cost you in, in financially because maybe you won't take a promotion at work because that'll interfere with your calling. And so when you're called by God, again, you have to count the cost. And we're going to see that so clearly in tonight's text. And so one of the things that will cost you is, is your time. One of the things that pastors struggle with a lot is the recognition that when you are called into ministry like that, you're, there's going to be times where you miss times with your family because there's somebody in the hospital or you need to do, there's a, a crisis that's taking place and you need to be available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And if you're going to do that, your family has to be called as well. And so you have to count the cost and, because it will cost you in time and it may cost you in emotions. It may cost you in a lot of different ways. Fourthly, when the Lord has a calling upon your life, you will be called to lead others to follow you in service to the Lord. When one person is called and there is a ministry they're called to, you can find out who, who God's called to be a leader because others follow. And especially like in, our, in my case, because I'm a church planter by heart, I love planting churches and, I would, and I'm, I'm 60 and if I had to, I'd plant another one. And I've been a part of four church plants, two of which I've been the pastor, the senior pastor. But when you're called to plant a church, you can't plant a church by yourself. Amen. Amen. And God, you need people that are just as called to come alongside you. And you know what? You need, to, you need to recognize what that calling is and share it with other people. And some of them will say, yeah, I, I see that. I agree with that. And I want to be a part of that. And we're going to see that with Nehemiah tonight. He's got a calling and a burden on his life, and he's going to exhort others to join him, and we're going to see a crowd of people join him as he makes a stand. And guys, when you're called to do something, there's something courageous or something, it shouldn't say courageous. Well, I, I, it's contagious and it's courageous, right? Because here's what happens. When someone has courageous faith, it's contagious to other people. When somebody is excited about the things of God and they, this is what the Lord's put on my heart and people recognize it, often other people will say, I want to be a part of that. And again, people that come and help plant a church are just as called as the person who plants it because God's the one who plants it ultimately. And you need servants to show up or the church will never really uh, come into existence. And then finally, you will face opposition from the enemy. See, part of counting the cost too is that when God is using you, the enemy doesn't like it. And he will not sit idly by and do nothing while you are being used for the Lord. And that's why so often, it, well, in Scripture, everybody used mightily suffered greatly. You go through every one of the apostles, except for the apostle John, who they tried to boil in oil and wouldn't die because God wasn't done with him. Most of them were crucified, they were beheaded, they lost their lives. And so you're going to face opposition from the enemy. And if you're called to do God's work, every time I'm, I face opposition, it just says, well, that must mean God's doing something great. Amen? Because Satan's resources are limited. And again, I don't know of very many people that have been, in, been faithful in ministry for very many years who haven't gone through trials greater than most people ever go through whether it's their health or their children or whatever they may be that they go through, but again, because the enemy's on attack. So let's take a look there, the transforming work of the call of God in the life of a believer. First, when you're consumed by the calling God has placed upon your life, you won't be able to keep it to yourself. Let's begin there in verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 2. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, 
But I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. So the month of Nisan, that's significant. We'll talk about why in a minute. But the month of Nisan, we saw that uh, it was four months earlier when, when he heard about what was going on in Jerusalem. And for four months, he's been praying. He's been in mourning, if you will. Uh, he's been fasting, certainly part of it, uh, probably not for the entire four months, but he's been fasting, he's been praying, he's been crying out to God, and for four months, he's just been waiting on the Lord. And often when we pray, we want God to answer in our time, God answers in his perfect time, and there's more, no greater example in the entire Bible of God's perfect time than in this chapter tonight, we'll be at, at look at that verse in a moment. But it says there, when did he, when did this take place? It says, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. So the 20th year of Artaxerxes is 445 BC. On Sunday in Daniel chapter 9, we saw that it said from the, the, the proclamation to go out and to rebuild Jerusalem until the day of the coming of the Son of Man, we saw that it was 173,880 days. This is where we get the date that we add 173,880 days to. And when you add those days to it, it comes to the date when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on, a, on the donkey. So God waited four months, to we're going to see, for him to be sent back. And he waited four months to the exact day so the prophecy would be fulfilled because God always knew it was going to be that day because God's sovereign. Can I get an amen to that? And so when, when we're waiting and we don't understand what God's doing, Guys, God's smarter than you, amen? And God knows what he's doing. And part of that too, we're gonna see that God's not only waiting because it fulfills prophecy, but God's also waiting because he's doing a work in Nehemiah's heart. He's preparing Nehemiah for when the time is ready. When, when you are waiting, it is not wasted time, it's preparation time often, when you're saying, what? I've, been, I've been praying for a spouse, I'll just use that. I've been wanting to be married, I've been praying for a spouse. Why haven't I met him? Why haven't I met her yet? Well, maybe God's doing a work in you, or maybe God's doing a work in the one that's going to be your spouse. And when, those, when that work is done, then God will bring you together. You know, often too, it's like we pray about certain ministries we want to be involved in, or we pray about job situations. And why does God say no? Because God knows what is best for us. So the last verse of Nehemiah chapter 1 told us that he was the cupbearer. And notice here, so in this month of Nisan, this is literally, uh, it's March 14th, 445 BC. It's the exact date. Because remember, they have a lunar calendar. We have a solar calendar. And, and that's what the date lines up to. And that's what the one that you add the days to. So, and so he has this significant position in the ancient royal court. And it says when he brings the wine to him, so it's his job to come before him with his meals every day, to bring before him. He selects what drink he would have. He brings it for him. He's already tasted it. It's making sure that the king will not be poisoned. And as he brings it before him, he's always got an audience with the king. Now, one of the things that was very important to the kings is anybody in their court because they would have these people, he'd be sitting on his throne, or in this case, he might have had a big feast and he's sitting at his table. And if anybody around you wasn't joyful, it was such a, a, bad, a bad thing toward the king that 
the king would get upset. What, what they wanted, he wanted people around him that were good looking. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? Who did he pick? Remember he picked the boys to serve alongside him? Why did he pick Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? He said they were good looking. They were charismatic. So they want these good looking people around them and they want them to be joyful because if they look sad, it's a bad reflection on the king. Like he's not a great king to serve. You know, just being around me, you ought to be doing jumping jacks. That's what kings want. And so he's bringing this this before him, then we're going to see that for the first time, he's going to notice that his countenance is not happy. And he's going to recognize it, and he's going to question Nehemiah. Notice what it says here at the end of that verse. Now, I had never been sad in the presence of the king. As a part of, again, of his court, his countenance was important. The people that were looking on we would portray the king in a bad light. Is the king mistreating him? And why is he acting like that? Is the king cruel and vicious? And he did not, that didn't go over well. And again, and sometimes it would cause your death. Now, it's even more so with the guy who's the cupbearer. Why? Because if he's looking a little sad, you might be wondering, should I check that wine twice? You know, is he, is, he, is he looking sad because somebody blackmailed him or someone's threatening him and he knows when I drink this, I'm going to drop dead and he's worried about what's going to happen to him? I mean, if, any, if you want anybody to be joyful around you, it's a dude that just taste tested your food, right? Or is he sad because he's sick and I need to wait a minute to see if he's going to drop dead before I eat this, you know, taco, right? <laughs> and so, the, so here he is and he sees that he's sad. And the word sad there in the Hebrew, it means unpleasant, bad, uh, unhappy. And so his countenance, the king sees him and just notices immediately, what's wrong? That's Nehemiah. That's my guy. Why is he looking so sad? And it becomes concerning to the king. You know what? Nehemiah had made it a practice to keep his emotions separate from his work, and it was his job to be encouraging to the king, and his sadness was due to the burden for Jerusalem and God's people in the holy city. And again, he'd been praying, mourning, and fasting for four months, and his burden for Jerusalem continued and affected his countenance and his emotions, but he kept praying. Verse 2, therefore the king said to me, why is your face sad? Since you are not sick, there is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. So again, he wanted to separate, you know, his, his work face from how he really felt. And for what he was so overwhelmed and he was so concerned about Jerusalem that he could not hide his mourning. He could not hide his sadness. Now it says, I became dreadfully afraid because as soon as the king notices that you're sad and he calls it out, he knows that that's not acceptable in the king's court. At the very least, you're going to lose your job and be punished. On the worst case, you could be put to death. And so he quickly becomes afraid. He's fearful of what the king will do. Again, his countenance was a concern for the king. It reflected poorly on him. And those closest to him, again, were always to be joyful. What a great and joy bless, joyful blessing it is to serve this king. You know what? It's joyful blessing to serve our king. Amen. Always. And we should be joyful. As Christians, we shouldn't look like we've been sucking on lemons. Amen. We should be looking like people who, we have the joy of the Lord. I'm not saying we don't go through trials, but joy has nothing to do with our circumstances and everything to do with who we are in Christ. The fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5.22, love, joy, 
And again, we have Joel and it's Jesus, others, yourself, right? In that, in that J-O-Y, Jesus, others, yourself. So as the king's cupbearer, it made the king worry. He was concerned about him. He was dreadfully afraid. It can because a sad, sound, sad countenance reflected poorly on the king and it could cost him his life. So if the king lost his faith in his cupbearer, what good is he? If I can't trust this guy, what good is he? If he's sad, what am I going to do with him? Now, the good news is that God is in control and that our God is faithful. Now we're going to see Nehemiah respond. And we're going to see that, again, when somebody has a burden on their life and a calling on their life, it's going to be something that consumes them to some degree. Now watch how Nehemiah responds in verse 3. And the king said, and he said to the king, excuse me, May the king live forever. Now, that would be something that the cupbearer would say every time he saw the king. Because the reality is he had some control over that. But he would say, may the king live forever. And then he says this, why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? (laughs) Nehemiah tells him what's on his heart, knowing it could cost him something. You know what? There's a reason I'm sad, king. Here's why. Because the city of my father's, where my ancestors are from, it lies in waste, and I'm overwhelmed by it, and I'm burdened by it. And if the king didn't want to show him favor, he would be done. But he cannot help but share the burden that is on his heart. He cannot help but cry out to the king on behalf of the city. Now, when I, remember when I said that there was a king 20 years earlier when they started rebuilding that told him to stop? Guess who it was? Artaxerxes, this same king who had heard they were rebuilding and sent back a threat saying, if you keep building, we're coming after you. And they stopped building. And now Nehemiah is asking that same king that commanded they stop building. Now he doesn't tell him the city yet. You notice that? There's a little wisdom here. Well, it's my people in my city. He didn't say Jerusalem yet, did he? He's just letting him know what his burden is. And then he's going to tell him where it is. And it's only the Lord that could turn that king's heart from demanding that nobody rebuild to giving approval for Nehemiah to go back and rebuild. But our God can do that. Our God can change anything, right? He can transform. He can change the hearts of men to do his perfect will. So Nehemiah's answer was not only wise, it was honest. And when we're visibly visibly depressed and discouraged or troubled, when someone asks us, most of the time, what do we say? If you're not doing well and someone says, how you doing? I'm all right. I'm okay. Oh, it's all good. I mean, that's kind of what we do. We're not real transparent most of the time. And you know what? He's being transparent here. He could have easily just said, oh, no, king, I'm okay. But he doesn't. And it's a good thing that he doesn't because it's going to move on the king's heart. Nehemiah is so deeply burdened over Jerusalem, he openly shares his heart with the king, knowing it could cost him his job or even his life. Again, because when you're called, that's the passion of your life. That's the priority of your life. That's the thing that consumes you. Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. So he says to him, so what is it you want, Nehemiah? What can I do for you? You know, he's been a good cupbearer. He's, he's a guy that he would even seek counsel from from time to time. This guy's got his life in his hands. But now I want you to notice what happens here. He says, what do you request? He said, so I prayed. Now, it couldn't have been a very long prayer. 
Because literally he said, while he was standing there, he asked me what I wanted, and, and this is what I do. Lord, help. That's a good prayer. Can I get him into that? It's when you, you know, it's, you get, you're picking up the phone, and it's kind of a gnarly situation, and you need wisdom to, to counsel somebody, and you're like, Lord, help. Lord, show up. It doesn't say what his prayer is, but it couldn't have been very long because literally he says, what do you want? And he says a quick prayer, and then he's going to share his heart with the king. Now, the way that we can do that is if we pray without ceasing. People often ask, what, how can you pray without ceasing? How can you pray all day long? I like to say that I get up in the morning, I put God on speakerphone, and I don't hang up till I go to bed at night. Just leave him on speakerphone. We can talk to God anywhere and anytime, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, we can just stop and talk to the Lord. Ask my wife how many times a day she hears me say, Lord, help in our house. It's many, it's several times a day. Now she's doing it too. That's what happens when you're married to me, right? But I just, I mean, Lord, help. She goes, what's up? I'm, I'm trying to figure this verse out or whatever it might be, right? And so he's going to, he just cries out to God. The king asked him, he may not have been ready for that. Whoa. I don't know. Lord, help. I don't know what to say to him right now. Lord, can you give me direction here? Give me wisdom. What do I say to the king? Now he's been praying for four months. And now in that moment, he cries out to God for his help, for his hand to be upon him. So I prayed and Nehemiah cried out to God before he answered the king. And this is something we should all do. This is the moment I've been waiting for. Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, please help. Please show me. Guys, it's always good to pray before you respond. Amen? When you don't know what to say, stop and pray. Stop and pray and ask God for wisdom and direction. So here he goes. He says a quick prayer and he says, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah. Oh, okay. Oh, all right. Judah. This is the place he's, he told him to stop building. To Judah to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. The word favor there is to be good and well-pleasing. If you have found me good and well-pleasing in your sight, please, O king, will you allow me this favor? Will you allow me to do this? And again, we can find favor by doing our job as unto the Lord. You know one of the reasons he's going to have favor is because he's been a faithful servant to the king for however many years he's been there. And have you ever noticed that you will find favor in your job site. You'll find favor where you work if you do your job as unto the Lord because you don't work for your company, you work for Jesus. And when you work for Jesus, you'll be the best, one of the best employees in your company, amen? You'll do your job as unto the Lord. Your boss will never have to worry about you. You'll be where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there. You'll give a full day's work for a full day's pay. You'll be an honest worker, a hard worker, a faithful worker, and you know what? And it's easy to ask questions and you will find favor with your boss when you work hard Amen. and when you're a faithful worker. So just remember that when you're at work tomorrow and you're getting a little bummed out and you're getting a little tired of your boss, just remember your ultimate boss is Jesus. Amen? Amen. So I believe that one of the keys to finding favor is not by working for your boss, but working for the Lord. It says in Ephesians 6, servants be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and singleness of heart is unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers. This means you don't just serve real hard when they're watching, right? You know, they're, they're working really hard and then they, the boss walks off and everybody starts, you know, shucking and jiving, right? When I, was, when I was in high school, actually early in high school, my dad was pastor and CEO of a company. And I would go work for my dad's, it was an electronics company in the Silicon Valley. And I would go work in the shipping department in the summers. 
And I remember the first time I went to work there, nobody knew that my dad was the CEO of the company. And so they're back there shucking and jiving and messing around, and they had this code, JJ's coming. That's Johnny Johnston. That's my dad. And, my, and JJ's coming, and everybody you know, gets up, and they're like working like madmen, you know, and they're busting tail, and they're, you know, they're really working hard. They turn the radio down, and, and then my dad comes walking back, and he goes, hey, son, you want to go to lunch? And I'm like, yeah, dad, let's go. And they're like, oh, no, we got we to gotta, we gotta spy back here, right? But the reality is that we should work just as hard if our boss is 500 miles away than if we're sitting right next to him. We should do our job as unto the Lord because the Lord is always watching. And reputation is who you are when everyone's watching. Character is who you are when no one's watching. And we don't want to just be men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good with good will, doing service as to the Lord, not to men. Now, there's this guy named uh, Howard Hendricks. I remember he was from Dallas Theological Seminary, and he spoke at a, a Promise Keeper some years ago, and he kind of touched on this. And this is the illustration that he used. So he was a, a, a professor in a seminary, but he was also a guy that American Airlines would use to come and speak to their people. And they would, they would tell him when he was flying that they wanted him to just kind of watch what goes on and give them a report of how people are doing. And so he said this, he said he was traveling and uh, he tells a story of one flight where the flight attendant did a wonderful job. There were crying babies, drunk businessmen, and nothing stopped her from smiling and politely serving. At the end of the flight, he stopped to talk to her to tell her that he was going to write some good things on a report about her and give it to her superiors. And she said, well, Mr. Hendricks, I don't work for American Airlines. And he was puzzled. And she continued. She said, I work for Jesus. See, when we work for Jesus, we're going to do everything as unto the Lord. And, and here we have Nehemiah's got a godly testimony. And because of that favor that he's going to find with the king, the king's going to want to let him the king's going to want to, want to minister to uh, Nehemiah and allow him to respond to the calling God has placed upon his life. So will you send me to Judah? Can you send me back there? Now, he has no idea that 20 years earlier that Artaxerxes was the one that said, stop building. And now he's asking this man, and we're going to see that God is going to show him favor through a pagan king. So Nehemiah's burden gives birth to a vision. King, please give me some time off. Send me back to the land of my people that I may rebuild it. And note who commanded the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the same man is now being asked to not only that, he's going to lose his cupbearer. This is the guy that he trusts the most. So he's saying, not only do I want you to let me go back and build the city you didn't want built because you were afraid that they might turn against you, but I want you to let me go back for many years and you got to find a replacement for me. And, and are you okay with that? Now, again, most kings wouldn't be, but God is the one who moves the hearts of men. Nehemiah was a trusted member of his court. He asked to be sent back to build that very same city that he had been concerned about before. It would not have been possible if he had not found favor with the king. And again, he could have questioned his loyalty and his motives. So then he says there in verse six, then the king said to me, the queen was sitting beside him. So this would have been a feast, queen sitting beside him. How long will your journey be and when will you return? So notice that he's willing to let him go, but he wants to know, well, how long are you going to be? And this also tells you how much he finds favor with Nehemiah because he doesn't want him to be gone forever. He literally is saying, when are you coming back? I mean, I really want you to come back. And again, this guy's his servant, but he finds favor in his eyes 
because he's been a faithful man and because God is answering prayer. So he says there, when will you return? So Nehemiah was highly valued servant. He didn't want to be gone forever. His faithfulness earned the king's trust. He was valued. And it says, it pleased, it says there, if it, if, if it pleases the king, if the servant has found favor, I ask that you send me to Judah. Then he says in verse six, and the king said to me, how long will the journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. And I set him a time. So he tells him how long it will be, and the king says, okay, you can go. Now, this tells me something else about a calling. He has never been to Jerusalem in his life. He only has heard tale of what is wrong. And he has thought about it so much that he has an idea how long he's going to be gone to get this job done. And he's never even been there. See, when someone has a calling of God, God will stir them up and they'll, have, they'll, they'll be thinking about it and planning. What can I do? So if I want to start a, a, a singles ministry, what do I need to do that? How, what are the things that are going to take place? How am I going to do that? And you start to be consumed with it and praying about it and seeking God's wisdom for it. And so when he gets asked this question, he has a time. He tells him, it's going to be 12 years. He's asking for 12, I'm going to need 12 years. I'll be back. But he's going to let him go. He finds favor because it's God, if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? So he had a burden. He had a vision. He had a plan. Nehemiah clearly has a plan. Again, for a lack of vision, the people perish. He was ready with the answer. So what, what else do you need for this to take? This is what I'm going to need. He's going to tell him more stuff in just a moment. So Nehemiah's sympathetic heart, his months of prayer, his moment of prayer right before he talked to him, his great faith, his vision, his wise responses were all answered positively, and the king was enthusiastic about supporting Nehemiah. Proverbs 21.5 says this, The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those who, who of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. Guys, when, when, we, when we do anything for the Lord, we want to do it with excellence. If we're mopping the floor, let's mop the floor for Jesus. Amen? Whatever we're doing for the Lord, we want to do it with excellence. We don't want to do it halfway. I can promise you, I have many, many flaws, but I can promise you that I will never get up and teach the Bible unprepared. Ever. If I'm unprepared, I'll just make Joshua teach or something, right? No, I'm just kidding. But you know what I mean? I don't want to do it. Why? Because I'm accountable before God on Judgment Day. And whatever ministry we do whether we're doing the, the sound or we're you know, serving in children's ministry or women's ministry or men's ministry or set up or tear down or whatever, bringing meals to the agape feet, anything we do, we want to do it with excellence because we're doing it for the Lord. Amen? And when you do it for the Lord, it is different than how the world does things. And, and they're going to notice and they're going to recognize it. And you know what we want to do through all that is give God the glory. Give God the glory. I got a call from one of my coworkers today, and he's, you know, and it was very encouraging. He just said, Hey, I, I got almost all your clients. They all ask about you. They all want to know where you are. They're all, you know, what happened? Where's, where's Pastor Day? They've all got my phone number. They can call me. But he just said, Man, your clients love you. And that's a good, isn't that what we want, right? When we leave, don't we want to leave well? We don't want to leave and they go, Man, where'd that guy go? I'm mad at him. He owes me money, right? Or something like that. You know, we want to finish strong. We want to, we want to leave a good and godly testimony because. Everybody in my work knows I'm a Christian, and the last thing I want to do is leave a bad taste in their mouth about Christians. Amen? 
So at your workplace, your, your coworkers probably know you're saved. Be the best worker in the building. Be helpful. Help other, other people, even when they, you think they don't deserve it. Help them anyway. Just let's be, let's be Christ-like in the workplace. So Nehemiah has a plan. Look at verse 7 and 8. Now watch this. He's going to get bold now. He said, can I go? Yeah, how long? It's going to be 12 years. Just says a set time here, but we're going to see he's going to be gone for 12 years as we move through the book. Now, he says this, furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river. They must permit me to pass till I come to Judah. So now he's been thinking about this and he knows, look, I'm going to travel about a thousand miles on a donkey or a, I don't know what, what he's going to be on, but he's going to travel a thousand miles. He's going to have some people with him and it's a great distance. And he's saying, look, I've already thought about this journey and I know that along the road, I'm going to run into some people that are going to, you know, give me a hard time. And I want King, if you could give me a letter that shows that you sent me, then these people will leave me alone because they're going to be afraid if they don't leave me alone, you're going to come after them and they don't want that. Now, this is a man who's planning ahead. Amen. He doesn't just say, oh, I want to start a ministry. Well, let's just show up and we'll figure it out when we get there. No, that doesn't work. That's when things fall apart. We need to be prepared. So he knew how long he would be gone and he knew he needed letters and he knew the kind of materials he would need. Look at verse eight. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams from the gates of the citadel, which pertain to the temple for the city wall, for the house that I will occupy. He's saying, oh, by the way, I need letters. And by the way, I'm going to need some lumber. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to give me a note so I can go to Asaph and he can cut me down some trees. And here's how much lumber I need. I need it for the walls. I need it for the gates. And by the way, I got to build myself a house because I'm going to be there for 12 years. So I need you to give me all of that lumber. Ask not because you have. I mean, we have not because we ask not. Amen. He went from being scared to death of his countenance. And now he's asking for all of it. Because again, we, need, we can ask the Lord with the Lord with boldness, amen? We can come before the Lord and say, Lord, this is what we need. Can we do this, Lord? Can you provide this for us? I love this. So we had a plan. And our God is a God of order, by the way. And Nehemiah knew the needs by carefully and patiently seeking the Lord. So that four months he was praying was not a waste of time because that's when he was, no doubt in his mind, putting all these things together. Well, if I go... I, well, wait, wait a minute. I'm going to need safe passage. Wait a minute. Once I get there, how am I going to build everything? I know I can use the rubble and stuff, hopefully to rebuild the walls out of stone, but I'm going to need wood and I'm, I'm going to need to build a house. And how am I going to do that? So he's been focused on this and preparing in his mind. If the day would come when he gets to do what he's called to do, he's ready to hit the ground running. And I, want, and I would I encourage people that, you know, people will call me a lot not that I'm anybody, but they'll say, well, you know, you've planted churches before and I'm trying to plant a church. Do you have any advice? And I did the same thing when I planted a church. I talked to people who planted churches before. Tell me some things I need to do. How should I prepare for this? Well, in his mind, this is what Nehemiah is doing. And as he's praying and he's fasting, he's crying out to God for answers and direction and God's given it to him. And now he is faithfully asking for it. Notice at this point, the answer is yes or no or wait. And know, know that waiting is often a time of preparation for what's next. Waiting is never a waste of time. Just remember that. Now, this day right here when he's sent out, that's March 14th, 445 BC. And it's 173,880 days that, that Jesus comes 
into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. I find it interesting that he's on the back of a donkey headed to uh, Jerusalem. And Jesus, 173,880 days later, is going to come marching into Jerusalem on the triumphant entry. And it's all prophesied in scripture. And that's why you see dates in the Bible. Amen? Why in the world do they give us the date? Because it's important. So the king granted to him, notice what it says here, the king, and the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Here's what he says. You know why I got to have it? Because God said so. It was the grace of God. Why did I get the promotion at work? Because the good hand of God upon me. Why, why has God blessed me with the children? It's the good hand of God upon me. See, guys, when anything good happens, it's the grace of God, the goodness of God, and we should always be praising God and not taking the credit ourselves. Amen? So point number one there, when you're consumed by a calling God has placed upon your life, you won't be able to keep it to yourself. Again, Nehemiah was so burdened for God's people. There was no hiding it from the king. When you're moved by the call uh, of God upon your life, your priorities and passions will change. All of a sudden now, he can't think of anything else. He's got the job that a lot of people would love, and he's ready to leave that comfort zone behind and travel a thousand miles and go back to a city that's been, been leveled and rebuild it and he's not in construction. You know that's calling, amen? This guy's God's going to take the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and he's going to take a wine taster to go back and rebuild the city. Point number two, you will put feet to your faith. So he knows all these things. He's asked for everything. He's been given what he needs. What if he just went home that night and thought, you know, do I really want to travel a thousand miles? And they got that really good wine coming in next week. And by the way, they got that feast coming up. Yeah, maybe I'll let someone else do it. And a lot of times that's what happens. People are really zealous until it's time to do it. It's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to put feet to your faith. Look at verse 9 and 10. Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king has sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. So as he's traveling, this shows how much uh, the king cares about Nehemiah, he sends some of his royal guard to travel with him to make sure that he safely gets to the place to rebuild the, the, the walls in the city that he didn't want anybody rebuilding the walls to. Now he, and he gives them the lumber to rebuild it. Tell me this is not a God thing. The guy who said, don't build it, is now sending the lumber to build it, and he's sending guys to guard him on the way so he gets there safely so that he can build it. Says then I notice the word there. The first word is then I went. So he asked for all these things. Now he's going to do it. Maybe somebody in this room, you've you know there's a calling in your life. You know there's something God's been stirring you up with for a long time, and you've just been kind of sitting on your hands. And a lot of times, I think two of the biggest reasons we don't step out in faith: one, we feel inadequate. And by the way, I almost think that's I actually think that's a good thing. You know, if you feel like oh man, I don't know if I'm good enough to do it you're probably the right person. The wrong person is the one who's, well, just wait till they get a hold of me, man. I'm amazing. Wait till they hear me, you know, that mentality. And you have these people that think, well, you know, when I, oh, I'm going to plant a church. Well, then weeks will be 10,000 people. The buses will wait as we give the sermon, you know, all this kind of stuff. And they just think that they're the gift of God. And who, you know, you know who God uses the foolish things of the world. He uses the people, you know, he uses, he uses a 13 year old boy to kill a giant. Amen. He doesn't use the people that think they're great. And so, but notice that he went, he went, he recognized, okay, this is God's hand and he got the answer he wanted, but then he took the step of faith. 
So he sends this royal escort and reflects again his concern and God's favor. This guy's a slave and he's got a royal escort. That doesn't happen. Verse 10. Now watch what happens when they get there. So they go all the way to the other side of the river. This is to Jerusalem. When they come into Jerusalem, he's going to be greeted by some guys who live nearby. Look what it says here in verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, uh, Ammonite official, heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. There have been anti-Semites always. That's these guys. So Sanballat, his name means strength, and he is the governor of Samaria, the Samaritans. Now, Samaritans were half Jew and half Gentile. They had intermarried. You know, you've heard the story of the good Samaritan or the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. And you know that the Jews in those days would not even put their feet on Samaritan ground or they would defile themselves. They would literally walk all the way around Samaria. Now we know Jesus walked right through Samaria and ministered this Samaritan woman. So Samaritans were enemies to some degree, certainly of the Jews. Well, Tobiah is the, uh, of the Ammonites. Now the Ammonites are also enemies of the Jews. So here we have the Ammonites and the Moabites who live nearby. And what's great for them is there's no wall. And because there's no wall, there's no defense. There's no security. There's no privacy. And they love no wall in Jerusalem because they can just march in there and take what they want whenever they want. There's no opposition. They can just, and so they're in a place of reproach. They're in a place of no security. They're in a place of, of no privacy. And so now that someone's coming in, these guys are worried. They're disturbed. We like Jerusalem. It's been this way 140 years. Don't touch it. Leave it alone. And so these enemies are going to bring opposition against uh, Nehemiah as he comes in to do God's work. It grieved them exceedingly, it says. Again, they wanted it weak and vulnerable. While worship took place, that was fine as long as the people of God were not strong. And you know what? That's our country today for the most part. We have a lot of people that don't mind that we exist, but they want us weak and vulnerable, not strong and vocal. Amen? They want to silence the church. They want to keep, tell us to keep our faith to ourselves. They want to shout us down. They want to mock our faith. And you know what? They want us weak. They want us afraid. They want us hiding. They want us fearful of the government. That's why when they shut down churches, we didn't shut ours down because we're never going to do that. Guys, we need to stand for the things of God and never be weak in the eyes of man. Can I get an amen to that? And we can be humble, but we don't want to be weak. If God is for us, who can be against us? And so they're trying to, you know, Nehemiah is going to face opposition. The day he gets there, opposition waiting. What are you doing here? What do you think you're going to do here? They were discouraged that this guy would show up. Where did he come from? Who does this guy think he is? First of all, if you come in with a royal entourage, you think you might get noticed in a place that is leveled to the ground. And some guy comes in. Now, he's, I don't know how he's dressed, but he's not dressed like a king. And he's got this royal guard with him. Like, who's this guy? Who does he think he is? We've been running this place. Again, when the opposition came, uh, not a, it said that, it said that they didn't want anything to change. They wanted everything to stay the same, and they didn't any, want anybody who was going to come along and stir things up. Some people fear ever stepping out for the Lord because they know opposition will come. But if I step out for the Lord, the enemy's not going to like it. I've shared this with you guys before. I don't share it often, but 
we were a year and a half into Calvary Chapel, Santa Cruz. And I don't have a lot of, I don't see the devil under every rock and I don't blow that out of proportion. But about a year and a half in, the church was growing and literally our church was two, our, we met in the vets hall that was two doors down from the headquarters for the Church of Satan. And Santa Cruz is, is the tofu tie-dye New Age lesbian capital of the United States. And it's, it's a place that needs Jesus desperately. And so we've been there about a year and a half. And one night my wife had, my, little, my son Mark, who's now in heaven, was about four years old. And he had a really high fever. So she was sleeping in his room, taking his temperature, giving him cool baths at night to keep his fever down. And I was sleeping in the master bedroom. And in the middle of the night, felt an earthquake. And well, that's California. We have earthquakes, right? But we had an earthquake and I jumped up out of bed. And what do you do? You run to go get the kids, get them under the door, the doorway, because that's the strongest place. But as soon as I opened the double doors out of our bedroom, the earthquake stopped. I thought, well, that was quick. So I turned on the TV and no report of an earthquake. And I thought, so I go back to bed, go back to sleep. I'm laying down. I haven't been laying for two minutes. Another earthquake. This time the ceiling fan is hitting the ceiling. The ceiling fan's going, wham, wham. It's putting marks in the ceiling. So I jump up and I open the doors out of my bedroom and it stops. I'm like, what in the world? So I get on, I get on the TV and there's no report of an earthquake. And I lay down. I'm like, did I just eat a chili? Is there something wrong with me? You know, I'd have too many chili dogs for your dinner. I mean, I didn't know what was going on. Am I having a bad dream? And so I lay down and this is what I heard. I don't think I heard it audibly, but I heard it as clear as day. Quit teaching the Bible and I'll leave your family alone. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, I was, I was afraid. It struck some fear in me. I was like, whoa. So I even shared it with my other elders. I shared it with the other pastors in our church. And, uh, you know, talked to my wife about it. And I said, well, you know, babe, greater is he that is in us than he is in the world. And do you know that when Mark died, the first thing Lynette said to me is, if you had quit teaching the Bible, he would have left our family alone. Now, we know we're never going to do that, right? We know we're going to honor the Lord no matter what, right? But you need to know that the more that God is using you, the more the enemy hates you. He hates all of us. But who's he going after? And again, I'm nobody. But, you know, that's why we need to pray for pastors. We need to pray for people in ministry. We need to pray for missionaries. We need to pray for people being used by the Lord because the enemy wants to do everything he can to distract us. He wants to take, he wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your home. He wants to destroy your family. But let me tell you right now, your family won't be better if you don't serve the Lord. It'll be better if you do serve the Lord because God will be with you even as the enemy attacks. Amen? So don't ever let him win. But here it is. That's why a lot of people are like, well, if I, so here he is. He steps out in faith. He doesn't even get, he just walks into the city. Enemy waiting. People surrounding him. What are you doing here? Who do you think you are? Now, by the way, there's going to be one other person mentioned at the end of the chapter. And these three guys have, all have mighty armies that all could come and attack him. It's going to be the Arabs, the last group. And that's the Moabites. So these, the Ammonites, the Moabites, right? They're all going to be those who could come in and bring an attack against him. And he doesn't even have, an, he, has a, he has a people that got him there, but they don't have some great army. But guys, no army is greater than the God that we serve. Amen. So it grieved them and they wanted it to stay a place that was vulnerable. Point number three, you will have to count the cost. Now watch what happens in verse 11. So the Ammonite official, they heard it. They were deeply distressed. And then it says, so I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night and a few men with me. And I told no one what God had put in my heart to do in Jerusalem, 
nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. So he gets up in the middle of the night to go for the first time and travel around the city and see exactly what he's facing. He's going to go around, because he, and he's doing this late in the evening because he doesn't want people to see what he's doing. He hasn't told anybody what he's doing, and he's basically going to go count the cost. And we're going to see him go, start at the most western gate and go all the way around the city. And as he goes all the way around the city, he's going to see how much damage is done. He's going to figure out in his mind what he has to do to rebuild everything. How much lumber is he going to need to repair all the gates? And so what is he doing? He's waited four months. The building's been down for 100, it's been down for 141 years, and he's still going to take time to count the cost before he starts. He's still going to figure out, what do we need before we start this? I want to make sure I do this right. I think sometimes when it comes to, uh, especially if we're called to a ministry, sometimes we're so excited to do it, we don't take the time to figure out how to do it well, to make sure we count the cost, to make sure we have a plan on how we're supposed to do what God has called us to do. When Nehemiah arrived, the military escort, everybody knew. They saw all the lumber, like, what's that for, bro? Right? So he's got stuff with him. And the people no doubt would have noticed, but he didn't say anything about the mission until the time was right. Far too many talk about what they're going to do for God, and they end up doing nothing. He doesn't say a word about it until he's ready to start doing it. If you want to serve God, go and do it. And there's no need to tell people what you're going to do or retell them what you've done. Again, we don't want to boast, and we don't want to boast. We want to give all the praise and the glory and honor to the Lord. Verse thirteen, and it says there in verse thirteen. And I went by night through the valley gate. So the valley gate. We're going to go through this next week and the week after. So there's all these gates, and if we had gone to Jerusalem like we thought we were, we'd be but have just gotten home. Um, literally. The gates are still there. And you go through, you go around the city and all the gates are there. And there's one of the uh, portions of wall that Nehemiah rebuilt that is still there. It's pretty awesome. And so when you go around, there's all these different gates. And so it says that he started at the valley gate and it's the gate on the most Western part of the city. To the serpent well, to the refuse gate, viewed the walls of Jerusalem where the walls of Jerusalem were broken down and its gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and the king's pool. The king's pool is a pool of Siloam. You see that in the gospels. Uh, But there was no room for the animal under me to pass. There was so much rubble that they couldn't even, he couldn't even get around a lot of the places because it was just in destruction. There's not even enough room to get his donkey through the spot. So he's, he's going around, he's realizing everything here has been destroyed. It looks like it did 140 years ago. It's an absolute disaster. But you know what? He sees it. He recognizes the, the great need that is there, and it doesn't cause him to run. Instead, it stirs him up to get other people to help him do what God wants him to do. See, sometimes people, and this, this, by the way, this is a pastoral thing. You hear it all the time. I don't care who I talk to when they're planting a church, and it's always true. They're like, yeah, I went to plant this church, and I didn't realize it was the hardest ground in the whole country, the city that I picked. It's amazing how every city that everybody picks is the hardest ground in the whole country. Because, oh, you know, my friend planted a church, and you know, I went to this place. It's really tough. Because nobody there goes to church. And then, to, and then you talk to the next guy, he goes, oh man, this place is really tough. Everybody already goes to church. They've already got a church. So it doesn't matter where you go, right? And the reality is that if we look at the circumstances, we're going to always look at it like, well, well, this is the worst place. And you know, guys, if God calls you, God will sustain you. 
God gets all the glory. Go where he called you to go. Be faithful to it. And the fruit belongs to the Lord. You just be faithful and the growth belongs to him. Amen? And so he goes through and he sees this is a disaster. No doubt worse than he could have even imagined. But notice when he's called, he doesn't flinch. You've heard me say this before that Don McClure is my senior pastor. I was a, I was a youth pastor and men's ministry pastor for 10 years in Lancaster. My pastor was John Snoddle. And then for five years in San Jose, I was there with Rob McCoy and Rick Brown and Manny Olivas and a bunch of other guys you guys know, Craig Lindquist. We were all there on staff together. And uh, Pastor Don, when I went out to plant Calvary Santa Cruz, he set me down. I said, Pastor Don, it's time to plant a church. I'll go wherever you want me to go. And one of the things he said to me, you got to know that you 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 know that God sent you. He says, because you don't know that you 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 know that God sent you. When you get there, the first problem, you're going to wonder if you should have been there to begin with. Now you got two problems, the problem and was I even supposed to be here? But if you know that God sent you, then the problems are God's problems. Our third week of having a church, we showed up and they had a lesbian play in the room we're supposed to be meeting. And we had people coming to church, going to the lesbian play. No, 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 come here, come here, come here. So we had to meet in the parking lot. Our third week of having a church, we're sitting out in the parking lot in folding chairs and it was raining. It was misty. And we're like, all right, welcome to church planning. You know what I mean? But the reality is that we knew that God sent us. So God knew we were going to be, you know what happened though? We were outside. Some people heard worship. They came over and sat down. So God knows what he's doing, right? But the point is you have to know and see Nehemiah knew. And so when he saw the, this, the this destruction, okay, that's fine. This is where God brought me. This is why I'm here. Look at this place. It's a disaster. God sent me here. And God's going to raise some people up to help me do what God has called us to do. He's taking the time to survey all that needs to be repaired so he can put a, a plan in place to do what God had called him to do. Verse 15. By the way, Nehemiah would do anything for the Lord. He was at that place. If he had gone there and there was holes in the ground, he'd have filled them up. You know, he was just, you know, he was convicted. He was ready. And by the way, that's the person that God can use, right? One of my favorite Bible verses, you've heard me say, the eyes of the Lord search to and fro among the holders, seeking one who can show himself strong on account of, one whose heart is loyal to him. God is looking for men and women who will say, use me. I'll do whatever you want. I'll, I'll do anything you want me to do, Lord. I'm in. Just show me what you want done. That's Nehemiah. That's a man. That's a woman that God can use, someone with that heart. Verse 15. Then he says, Then, so I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate. That's where he started out to begin with. And so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, and the officials, or the others who did this work. He hadn't told the people who were the people that would be working on it. Uh, and maybe, you know, they, there was a temporary time they started working on the wall. But 20 years earlier, Artaxerxes made him stop. And so there were people that would have helped out. He hadn't told anybody yet. He's sizing up what needs to be done. And he's, being, he's taking, making plans so it can be done well. So before he does anything, he checks it out for himself. And sometimes we don't really know what the problem is that we're facing. Then we come up with a solution for the problem that doesn't exist. Too often, we make up our minds before we really check out what really needs to be done. By the way, this is so true, especially when you're doing marriage counseling or any kind of counseling. You hear one person's side and you think they're right until you hear the other side, right? 
And, and that's why you got to be careful. When you hear the first side, you don't make a bunch of, you know, well, let me talk to your spouse and let's, let's figure this out. Or let me talk to you if it's a boss and whoever, a brother and sister, whoever it is. And you want to hear both sides of the story. And by the way, usually there's her side, his side, and the truth's right about here, right? Because we both have our perspective. And I'm not saying anybody's lying, but we got our own perspective. So here he is, and he's, he's looking at what's taking place around him. He knows the people that he's going to need to come alongside him. And he wants to make sure he has all the facts before he makes a decision. When God gives you a burden and calls you to a specific ministry, pray, count the cost, and then obey in that order. So you don't put, get discouraged and quit because you did not count the cost. So Nehemiah had not told anybody yet. He surveyed the damage. He patiently prayed for four months while serving the king. He traveled for months to get there. He took the time to survey the damage before putting that plan God had called him to into action. So he's had a lot of prep time. Four months of prayer, probably two to three months if he was traveling with just a few people. It took four months for the 50,000 people to get there. So maybe three months. He had seven months and now he spends three days surveying before he even puts a plan together in a sense, before he brings it into existence. And so it's a good leader and a faithful servant needs to have vision, but he also needs to be patient at the same time. So burden, pray, calling, count the cost, obey. So point number three, you have to count the cost. Point number four, you'll be called to lead others to follow you in service to the Lord. Look at verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in? How Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. A reproach means without, without, from the outside, without protection from the outside. So look, we are sitting ducks. We sit here with no security. We sit here with no privacy. People can run over the top of us anytime they want. The city's in disrepair, and we need to come together and fix it. The citizens and leaders of Jerusalem were not sitting around waiting for someone to rebuild the walls. They had come to accept them the way that they were. So in 586 BC is when the wall was taken down. It's 445 BC now, 141 years, and no one's done anything. Can you imagine living and if... if Everything in this city was on the ground. It was all rubble and you're living in a hovel and no one's even picking up a rock. Man, we need the helps ministry. Get them down here. Amen. And that's not what happened though. They just got used to living in squalor. They just got used to living unsafely. And finally someone comes along and says, no, we need to fix this. No, we need to do this right. So they come to accept things the way they were. And years earlier, someone had tried. Enemies had stopped them. So they figured, well, if they stopped them, they'd probably stop us. So he says, come let us build the wall. He's burdened by the wall, laying in waste. He prayed, he mourned, he fasted, he waited. He called God to open the door. He counted the cost. He calls others now to join him. And again, he told them of God's calling upon his life and how he moved upon the heart of the king. He's going to let them know, this is why I'm here. This is why I came. And by the way, the king sent me. The king gave me his blessings. We don't have to worry about the king telling us we can't build it, but now I need some people to come with me. Who shares my vision? Who has a passion to see our walls rebuilt and our city rebuilt, to build, rebuild all of our houses and have us back to where we once were? 
Again, it takes one man to step out in faith sometimes. The project was more than just building a wall. It would remove a condition of shame and fear and poverty and insecurity amongst God's people. And often only the one called to do it sees the true size of the problem and the need to do something about it and trust, God's, trust God to do it. And is, to willing, is willing to let God use them. Again, David and Goliath. 40 days and 40 nights, Goliath, 11 foot 750, came down the valley of Elah, challenged the entire army. Saul was supposed to be their king. They picked him because he was head and shoulders taller than everybody else, because God had already told him the kingdom had been taken from him. He was scared half to death, and everybody would come out and shake in fear, and he would, I defy your army, sit down, and they just were scared to death. David had been anointed king, but wasn't going to be king for 40 years. David's anointed king, what is he doing? He's watching sheep. His dad goes to him and says, hey, your brothers are fighting a war. Take this cheese to them. He's basically the milkman bringing cheese to his brothers. So he goes in and, and he gets there and sees, here's Goliath. And everybody else is hiding and they run away, right? And they're just running away. And, they're and David, what does David say? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that comes against my God? See, the other men that were there saw 11 foot 750 against a mere man. He saw a puny man against Almighty God. David said, who's this guy coming against my God? And David says, I'll fight him. And his brothers say, go back and watch your sheep runt. That's Pastor Day paraphrase. But he says, go back and watch the sheep. Take your cheese and go home, cheese boy. You know what I mean? Just get out of here. And what does he say? He says, I'll fight him. And Saul is so petrified, he wants somebody. Dude, okay, come do it. You can marry my daughter if you'll go fight him. He told all the men that. Nobody wanted, she must not have been that pretty. No, but he, said, he, said, he just said, I'll give you my daughter. And nobody would go. And then they put Saul's armor on him, and it's too heavy. Because we're not going to do it in man's strength, we're going to do it in God's strength. And David goes out and fights. By the way, did you know that he's 11 foot 750, he had an armor bearer standing with him? It was two against one. Dude, you're 11 foot 750 and you bring a helper that's probably twice David's size, right? To carry his extra spears. His spearhead weighed 75, or spear weighed 75 pounds. His spear was 15 pounds. Like, it's like throwing a bowling ball on the end of a spear. That's how heavy it was. And David comes out there, no armor on. Goliath sees him and says, who's this dog you're sending out to me? And we know that Goliath went down in one, one fell swoop. David goes out, cuts his head off. The dust clears. What does 11 foot 750 sound like when it falls and hits the ground? That's a pretty, good, pretty big thud, don't you think? Thud. Bunch of dirt, you know, the dirt kicks up and they, they look up when the dust clears and he's standing on top of him and holding his head with two hands, no doubt, because it was too heavy. And what happened? All the people in Israel got brave and they chased all the Philistines as far as they could see and they defeated them. Why? Because one man stood when nobody else would. Well, in this case, one guy is willing to stand up and say, let's rebuild the wall when nobody else will. And just like when David stood, others joined him. Nehemiah stands and others are going to join him. Look at verse 18. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also the king's words that they had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to do his good work. Nehemiah imparted vision. He produced action by the people, people that had been sitting by and doing nothing, people that had been walking through the rubble, some of them their entire life, and have never picked up a rock. And now one guy shows up, and he shares the heart of God. He shares the vision of God. He's got a passion to do what God's called him to do, and other people see it, and they say, let us get up and build together. Praise God for those who will incite others to serve the Lord. Amen? They strengthened their hands for the good work. The word there means 
heart and to be strong. You know, encourage others to build. It says this in Hebrews chapter 10. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful in promise. And let us consider one another to provoke us unto love and to good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner is of some, but exhorting one another so much more as you see the day approaching. Exhorting somebody is calling someone to action. It's where you not only read the word and not, it's not just teaching a class, but in light of what you see in the word, you exhort others to take an action. And that's exactly what is happening with Nehemiah right here. Last point, you will face opposition of the enemy. So he's got the people ready. He's got the lumber. He has sized up what he needs to take place. He's got a, he's got a rebuilding plan in place. And now he's got the, the, the hands that he needs and they're ready to start. And look at verse 19. It says, but when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, and Geshem, the Arab, heard it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Will you rebel against the king? Now, first of all, when people make accusation against you, they almost never know what the heck they're talking about. Oh, you're going to rebel against the king, are you? And they're, they're laughing at him. It says they're mocking them. They're mocking, well, you, you, the king's coming. Oh, by the way, the king sent him, bro. Amen. <laughs> right? But the reality is that when you're doing what God has called you to do, people will mock you. You know, and sometimes too, when you step out to serve the Lord, even your own family members will say, why would you want to do that? Even other Christians might question you. If you did something as radical as, you know, I'm going to quit my job and and just go full-time in ministry. I'm just going to do that. And some people will go, dude, you're going you're gonna to make any money? No, I'm not. It's okay. Why would you do that? Because God told me. You're crazy. You know that they say the number one stumbling block for missionaries is missionaries' parents. The kid comes home and says, you know what? I'm going to quit my job. and I'm, going to go in the, I'm moving to Chile to plant a church. And the parents are like, oh, no, no, no. Let's give money so someone can send their kids. But you stay home with the grandbabies, Right? And, there's, and a lot of times, the biggest stumbling block is Christian parents, because we say we, we want people to go, just not our kids. We want to sacrifice, but not my kids. Ask Pastor Tim, his kids are in France, okay? <laughs> but the point is, but he's blessed that they're there, but they miss them. But here's the point. The point is that often when, you make, when you're stepping out for the Lord, you're going to have even well-intentioned people questioning why you would do that. You have people say, why would you want to try that? Why would you want to go feed the homeless? Why would you want to minister to people on the street? Why would you want to do any of these things? You could just be more comfortable if you just let someone else do it. Spiritual opposition to the work of God wants to accomplish is a reality amongst many Christians who, who fail to take account and are thus defeated when God calls them to do it. Know that if God is using you, the enemy hates it and he won't stand idly by Sanballat and Tobiah were deeply disturbed when Nehemiah came. They mock him as they work on the wall began. And then again, this Arab leader of the Edomites also. So the Moabites, Ammonites, and Edomites despised them. They were a serious opposition. And they had great nations, and they were powerful men who were coming against them. But notice how Nehemiah responds. Because this is a man who has no fear of men, but is a man who is faithful to God. Last verse. says there in verse 20, so I answered them and said, the God himself, God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, as we servants will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right and memorial in Jerusalem. Here's what he says to him. By the way, 
Our God will prosper us. I'm not worried about you. And, get, and he could have said, the king will prosper us. But he didn't. Because the king means nothing compared to Almighty God. God will prosper us. And by the way, none of this land belongs to you. And that can be said to the Palestinians right about now. Amen? Because here's what he says. He says, this is the land that God gave to us. This is the land of promise. You have no land here. None of this land belongs to you. You have no rights here. And this is God's land. We are God's people. We're going to rebuild the wall. And we're not afraid of you. That's Nehemiah. God bless this man. Amen? So he answers them. He was bold. He was straightforward. His words showed that he had not been put on the defensive by their mocking and scornful attack. By the way, when the world mocks you for your faith, don't let that sway you from what God has called you to do. Shouldn't be surprised when people who don't know God act like they don't know God. Amen? And with faith of choice of pleasing men or pleasing God, Nehemiah knew exactly what he was going to do. And again, he knew he would serve God. The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Isn't that amazing that the God of heaven is the one who cares for us? It's the God of heaven who sent his son to die for us. It's the God of heaven who gave us spiritual gifts. It's the God of heaven who calls us. It's the God of heaven, who, the Holy Spirit, who indwells us. He's the one that uses us. And guys, we're called into his family. He's got his hands upon us, and we get to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. So the transforming work of the call of God in the life of a believer, when you're consumed by the God's calling is placed upon your life, you won't be able to keep it to yourself. You'll put feet to your faith. You'll have, you'll have to count the cost. You'll be called to lead others to follow you in service to the Lord, and you will face opposition from the enemy. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We thank you for Nehemiah's example. I pray, Lord, for all of us. We've all been gifted by you for born again. And we know you want us to use those gifts for your kingdom and for your glory. May we not take those gifts and bury them in the sand. May we not allow the fear of man or the feeling of inadequacy to keep us from using the gifts you've given us for your kingdom and for your glory. And Lord, we know that the enemy may attack, but greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Lord, we ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen.